bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, courtesy of your grace. Help us never take your grace for granted, Father, and your mercy and your gentleness and your patience towards us. We are forever grateful, and we ask that you bless this time right now that we gather together as your children to continue to seek you in your word and by your spirit. Open our eyes, Father. Open our hearts. Help us see what you have for us this evening. Most of all, Father, we're thankful that you sent your son down for us out of heaven to become a man and do something unthinkable, to be perfectly righteous yet, die and be judged as a guilty person. We thank you that you did this crazy thing for us that we can't fathom so that those who trust in your son can be saved. Father, please bless this message. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. What is repentance and who gets to define it? Part 5. So if you hadn't noticed yet in this series, we're talking about heart issues again. And we know as we read our Bibles in context that God looks at and sees the heart. And that's why, on the board, the gospel of Jesus Christ is never to be confused with merely facts about him or his activities. Are there facts involved? Yes. You've got to learn who he is, who he claimed to be, what he did, about the resurrection. But the gospel is never just about the facts about him. The facts are what you make a decision based upon. Just think about that. The facts are what you make a decision based upon. But there's still a decision to be made. Unbelievers and the demons, as we've seen, accept a lot of facts about Jesus Christ. But if those facts only remain about him, like some objective, impersonal acknowledgement, and they don't become one's own beliefs in their heart, then they've not accepted the good news of Jesus Christ. Salvation, in other words, involves somebody reaching out to Jesus Christ in their soul, personally. The facts themselves don't save someone. Surrender to Christ alone saves a person. So let us all remember that as we, as we share the gospel. And let, let us not be guilty of making it all about the facts alone and then walking away as though there's no real decision to be made. We should be willing to and have the courage to um, call someone to the carpet, for lack of a better way to put it, to let them know clearly this is a real decision between you and God. And God sees the heart. So do with that what you will. I was thinking today, even believers know what you mean when, when you say, or even unbelievers know what you mean when you say, what do you believe in your heart? could be about anything. In other words, what do you really believe in your heart? I know you say this. What do you really believe? Unbelievers know what you're talking about. 
And that maybe that's God supplying the conscience and the Holy Spirit, enabling people. But the decision for Christ is a decision of the heart, the inner motivation, and the will, uh, not just the mind, as we've been seeing. So if someone keeps clinging to his own life as good or sufficient and isn't willing to turn from that, they're refusing Jesus as the solution to their depravity. Think about it that way. If someone is, is, continues to cling to their own life as good or sufficient, and they think they'll be okay with God, so to speak, and they're not willing to turn from that, then they're actually refusing Jesus as the solution to their depravity. We're all depraved. They're unwilling to even admit they're depraved. So these are the, these, these are the things that the Spirit's telling us to bring people along in. But someone who admits his depravity and turns from it, he's now humble and receives supernatural assistance from the Holy Spirit to deliver him from the prison of sin and death. But until someone personally assesses his situation before God, not just knowing the facts about Jesus, but personally assesses his own depravity, his imperfect standing before God, the Holy Spirit is not going to be able to assist him into salvation. Repentance has the whole person in view, as we've been learning. Willingly turning away from sin and self and towards God through Christ. So we're going to see a few examples of this this evening. And um, just reading things in context and see what you see in light of our subject on what is repentance and who gets to define it. Turn in your Bibles first to Luke 23, 39. Luke 23, 39. And note in this example how just a mental acknowledgement of facts doesn't save anyone. There's a humble surrender to God's reality that must take place in the heart and will of a man, not just in the mind. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, what do you see there in light of our subject? I see an unrepentant sinner and a repentant sinner hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And notice the unrepentant one acknowledged the facts of Jesus as the Christ. Did he not? 
He didn't deny it, that's for sure. But what was his problem? He wasn't humble. He wasn't willing to surrender. But the second thief on the cross came down low in his heart, as we've been studying. He knew the facts about Jesus, and he personally accepted them for himself, reckoning them to his own life and depravity, surrendering to Christ. Then the Lord rushed in like a flood to save that man. He said, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This was a repentant heart, a surrendered heart. God said, now I have something to work with. Anyone can know the facts. The unrepentant thief stated the fact that he was the Christ. But he wasn't saved. On the board, you remember this verse from a couple weeks ago? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So we've looked at the simple fact that even demons know about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and yet they remain destined for the lake of fire. Why? What's the difference between their belief and saving faith? Because they believe in shudder. What's the difference? They choose to remain in their arrogance. They will not surrender. The humble person repents, like our recent example of King David. We concluded this is why David, uh, why God called David a man after his own heart. And this, my friends, is what the heart of a believer looks like. Not perfectly and not all the time, but there's an attitude of repentance present in the believer through the Holy Spirit. It's not even, it's not even the believer's own repentance. As we've learned, God has to grant repentance. But this is the attitude present in a believer through the Holy Spirit. But man in general is a stubborn creature. Amen? That's one of probably if you had to pick three words to describe mankind. Stubborn might be one of them. Arrogant, same thing. And an interesting side note came up on Sunday. While giving grace is easy for God, nowhere in Scripture does it say that a man's decision will be easy. And this is why conversion usually takes some time. We might say it's a difficult decision for man because of his pride. That's the number one sin if we had to pick one, right? In Proverbs 6, I think it is. Arrogance. That's what destroyed Satan. He wouldn't, he refused to surrender to God in humility. And so man can be stubborn, holding on to his own goodness as sufficient and holding on to justifying his own sins. That's what man does when master justifiers, right? Maybe this is why Jesus said what he said in Luke 13, 24. Uh, turn again to Luke 13, 24. <clears throat> why is it a struggle for man? 
to surrender to Christ. I mean, why can't you just give up? <laughs> Anyone can give up, right? We're not asking, God's not asking man to do something you can't do. He's asking man to give up. It's like the opposite of doing, if you think about it. Why won't a man just do it and surrender? He's darn arrogant. The flesh is so arrogant. So Jesus said in Luke 13, 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's a very humbling passage. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter through the narrow door. We saw this Greek word for strive, agonizomai, meaning to contend for a prize, struggle, competes in the games, fight, labor earnestly, strive, to struggle, <clears throat> like engaged in an intense athletic contest or warfare, where the English agonize comes from. Think about it for a minute. What is man's part in salvation? What do we, you know, what do we always come back to? in the discussion. It's called free will. What's it called? Free will. <laughs> we know how stubborn a man's will can be. He holds on to his own will instead of willingly giving it up. Because the flesh naturally loves sin and self. So there's a real struggle there. And it's actually agonizing for man's pride to surrender to God. That's why it takes time. That's why God gives the average person 70 or 80 years on this planet. Patience. God's patience. Time for people to eventually surrender. Because man doesn't want to give up his pride. God's grace and salvation is pure. And the only way a man can be saved is by God's grace. But God won't force a man to honestly turn to his grace in his heart. God, God won't force a man to surrender his pride. He's waiting very patiently. But man has a free will. It's not just the facts. It's what you do with the facts. And that's where your own decision comes in. Anyone's own decision comes in between them and the Lord. And once someone is saved by grace, it doesn't mean there's no more place for repentance. In fact, repentance or humility is what fuels our relationship with God to be a growing one, to grow closer to Him. Repentance is us getting out of the way and humbly being open to what God's trying to teach us day in and day out. It's a surrender to God's ways, not our own. So there's the initial decision at salvation to surrender self, to be like, I give up, Lord. Myself isn't good. I think it's good in my arrogance, but I'm wrong. Right? There's that initial uh, surrender of self at salvation. And then there's sanctification. There's a daily surrender of self. God knows we don't totally surrender self in this life, 100%. What does he want? Willingness. 
What will you do with your free will? Will you choose to surrender self? But again, it's not just that salvation where God accounts it as righteousness. It's now a journey. We never arrive, in other words. But God wants the willingness. The humility draws us closer to him. So this was another side note that came up on Sunday about there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.1. Just because that's a true statement doesn't mean repentance isn't a good thing. Some believers think that. And it's like against the Word of God. It's, it's almost like saying humility is not a good thing. Why does the Bible tell us to confess our sins? On the board. Context is key. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful truth. Thank God for that. But that is a positional sanctification issue. That's being saved from the penalty of sin. Amen. Thank God. But that in itself right there, that verse is not an experiential sanctification issue with our daily walk with Christ. God wants us to repent daily as, an, as a general attitude towards Him because we blow it every day. So how are you going to walk with me? Repentance is a beautiful thing in God's eyes. You know, as, 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 even as believers, if you have the wrong perspective, you can look at it as a, as a negative thing. You know, having to recount your sin, for example. Having to humble yourself before God. The flesh doesn't want to do that. But in God's eyes, repentance is a beautiful thing. It's like a humble child. A truly humble child. What's, what's, what's better than that for a parent? He wants a surrender of our, heart, our hearts even each time we sin and fail. And that's how we draw closer to Him. And this is also another sign, quote-unquote, of a true believer. His heart and his attitude towards sin has changed. So we also saw this on a Sunday. Context is key. Repentance is not founded on sin being an inconvenience to man. For example, incurring punishment. That's not what it's supposed to be about. God sees the heart. Rather, it is remorse, a genuine remorse for offending your father who saved you. As David so intimately shared from his heart, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Psalm 51, 3 and 4. May we all humbly learn from men like David as an example written down in the scriptures for us. I mean, <laughs> a man after God's own heart, and he has this humble attitude. What does that tell you? He failed miserably. It was David himself, remember, when he was a young man, of whom God said that he looks at the heart not the outward appearance. And God loved the attitude and humility and repentance of David. 
Uh, it's really a heart that praises God for His mercy and grace. If you don't repent, if you don't have a repentant attitude, you're basically saying, I don't need to recognize your mercy and grace towards me. Maybe you're saying I'm good enough. Maybe you're being self-righteous. But that attitude of humility and repentance is basically saying, thank you, Lord. I've been a fool again. Thank you. Go again to uh, Psalm 32, verse 1. In this passage, we saw David having the same understanding that Paul had in Romans 8, 1 and 2. Same understanding about God's forgiveness and the positional sanctification thing. But there's also repentance in experiential sanctification. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, Psalm 32, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David knew the position, if you will, that God gave him, that, that he was saved from the penalty of sin by trusting the Lord. On the board, David's example. David understood what Paul wrote in Romans 8.1 and was elated to know that God saves, delivers man by grace from the penalty of sin. Awesome. Wonderful truth. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Then we see what a believer's attitude towards sin looks like. In verse 3 and on. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. <clears throat> On the board again. A humble heart confesses sin. Period. A repentant heart turns away from it. That's a gift from the Holy Spirit, by the way. This is the pattern established by God throughout the Scriptures. This is what God, God's after the heart, for example. And God sees the heart. And these things are required for salvation and sanctification. This is what God is after in man. And David had a true sorrow about his sin. He wasn't worrying about the punishment. He actually had a true repentance towards God, that he offended God. Kind of like Joseph's attitude, too, if you remember Joseph in the Old Testament. He's like, may I never sin against my Lord, my God. That was his attitude. So David basically said, when one is trapped in sin or deception, go to God humbly. He's going to be there for you and forgiving as long as you go to God humbly. 
Look at verse 6. Psalm 32, 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Salah. On the board, David's example, a repentant heart is a remorseful one. It's the same heart that seeks salvation and deliverance by the hand of God, namely by His grace. And then we see God's merciful, fatherly response to the man that's repentant toward Him in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Our Heavenly Father is always there for us, waiting for us to return to Him with a humble heart. He's never not there. His attitude is never one of, of a lack of forgiveness. He has perfect faithfulness, doesn't He? He's just waiting and looking to mentor us further in the truth. But He can't do that with an unwilling person. They have to break down first. They have to get on their knees, so to speak. And then the father can take him under his wing and teach him everything. But you can't teach a heart that's not open. One conclusion we have realized from Scripture is that true repentance is a grace gift. It's it's not even... Man, within man's own ability to repent. That's how weak we are. Even faith is a gift from God. That's how weak we are, how unable we are on our own. But God says, if you humble yourself before me, I will give you these things. I will change you. Repentance is granted to the person willing to humble himself before God. So the Spirit's over and over, you know, tapping us on the head with this, reminding us in different ways. And we see the same pattern of repentance and faith in our main passage. Go back to our main passage in Mark 8, 34. Mark 8, 34. So this is kind of the theme that we're going to cover in our second half of our message tonight. And it's a, it's, a, it's a regular theme throughout Scripture in different ways it's stated. Mark 8, 34. And he, Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. On the board, we've seen this regarding he must deny himself. Repentance involves the mind, heart, and will of man. A person unwilling to deny himself cannot follow Jesus, precluding them from his salvation. This is what it says in context here, in Mark chapter 8, for one example. And I know we've seen this point several uh, lessons, but it's worth repeating. Holy Scripture 
supports this point about the whole man being involved in saving faith. It's one thing to know the facts in your mind. But with your will, what will you decide to accept? You've got to make a decision. What will you decide to accept? Are you willing to turn from sin and self and to turn to Christ alone to be saved? Not, not turn to yourself to be saved and have a part in it. Are you willing to deny yourself that you can save yourself and turn away from that disgusting thing that you think is good sometimes? Are you willing to turn away from that and acknowledge your sin and turn to Christ alone to be saved? That's true salvation. That's true conversion. That's being born again. It's Christ alone. It's a very real decision. It's not just the mind knowing certain facts. In other words, it's what man decides to do with the facts that counts. Does a man reckon these truths to himself? Count them towards his own situation. Uh, does a man choose to be remorseful towards God about his sinfulness? Or does he live in denial of that too? Is a man willing to bow to the Lord in his heart? That's the picture of turning to Christ alone as Lord and Savior. So God is looking for a surrender of a man's will and heart. On the board, regarding the whole man, when a man surrenders in this way, counting the cost of the situation and accepting Jesus as his only hope, then God rushes in like a flood and saves this person from himself. Totally by grace, by the grace of God and the power of God. Again, when a man surrenders in this way, counting the cost of the situation and accepting Jesus as his only hope, then God rushes in like a flood and saves this person from himself. Why? This man surrendered his will. Stop trusting in himself, for example. And then God can sweep right in and take over and do it all. On the board, here's another point I thought worth repeating, even though we've seen it a couple times, regarding salvation. God does all the work in salvation, quickening a humble person to true repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Unbelievers represent those unwilling to be saved. As Jesus clearly stated, their issue is their attachment to their self-life. And again on the board, a humble heart cries out in desperation, not fully understanding all the forensics of salvation, but convicted of who is able to save it. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Just look at that point on the board. That's what God is after. That's what God is waiting for. It's not just an acknowledgement about who Jesus is, the, the facts of it. It's personally 
accepting them or him. Think about the thief on the cross when you see the point on the board. A humble heart crying out in desperation. I give, I surrender, right? Mercy. A man must reckon that his own self isn't good and be willing to turn away from his own righteousness even. And there are several good examples of this in Holy Scripture. On the board, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, a little fly in the throat, whatever you call it. Turning from sin and self. Religion has trapped many a man in his own righteousness, buying the lie that his self is good enough and that his sins aren't really all that bad. You've heard it before. I haven't murdered anybody, right? Always comparing to people that are worse. I haven't done that sin, so I guess, I guess I'm okay. Again, religion has trapped many a man in his own righteousness, buying the lie that his self is good enough and that his sins aren't that bad. Sin and self are actually the same thing or the same problem. We might say it's two sides of the same coin. And I used to separate these two things in my mind. But it's really one train of thought. Again, look at it on the board. It's really one train of thought. When a man thinks he's righteous, he refuses to admit he has sin that needs confessing to God. Right? If self is good enough, then the sin might, must not be that bad. This, this must, the self must be good enough to outweigh the sin. It's the same problem. So let's see a few examples in Scripture of what we might call the problem of self and how that's in the way to man being saved. And ask yourselves this question as we read, what's the difference between those who trust in themselves and those who don't? It's not a hard answer, but we'll see that as we go through. What's the difference between those who trust in themselves and those who don't? Turn to Luke 18, verse 9. We're going to see a couple parables that relay this truth, this problem that man has with self and keeping self in the way of a true faith in Christ, a surrender to Christ. Luke 18, 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So here we see an unwillingness to turn from self, but instead arrogantly holding on to self as good. And this is the very reason Jesus told this parable. Again, verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, 
swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house. How? Justified. How was a man justified? By faith. Does true faith have repentance in it? Or what? What was this man's prayer? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And folks, this starts at salvation. That's what this parable is all about. This starts at salvation. Justified. God gives grace to the humble. There you see a picture of true repentance, repentance slash faith, right? Two sides of the same coin in this tax collector who was unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven. And then God gives mercy. So is there any question that God is waiting for a repentant heart in man? He's not just waiting for some mental acknowledgement of Jesus. He's waiting for the mind, the heart, and the will to surrender. One must be willing to turn away from sin and self or they won't reach out to Jesus to be saved. I hope that's more clear to you than it ever has been. Uh, I know it is for me, thank God. Like he's shown me, you can't, you can't, a man can't do both. Where's your heart at? Are you still trusting in self that you're good enough? Um, or are you honestly repentant and are you reaching out to Christ? So says the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. If you want to turn there now, go to Acts 26. Somebody has to be willing to turn away from sin and self, or they won't actually reach out to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And remember, God would not require this of people unless it were possible for them. Through Him. All things are possible with Him. And God enables the humble person. So I want you to notice in this passage, in Acts 26, this is Jesus' personal assignment to the Apostle Paul. What does his personal assignment to Paul include? Look at Acts 26.15. We see Paul recounting his own salvation conversion when he got knocked off his high horse. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God. What's Paul's objective? What does Jesus want Paul to help people do? 
Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. From the dominion of Satan to God. This, folks, must mean it's possible for people to turn. It's not like um, it's a free will issue. It's man's will getting in the way or surrendering. It's not some kind of a human work or something that man can't do. God has said, I've given you the faculties. I've given you free will. I've given you a conscience. And my Holy Spirit's knocking on your head this whole time, waiting for you to open the door. Again, verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Apparently this is possible by God's power. Notice turning is one of the very things Jesus sent Paul to preach about. This is an integral part of the gospel of honestly trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. This also came out on Sunday on the board. How does man suppose he can simultaneously cling to the self-life, for example, maintain an unrepentant heart, and cling to the cross? Scripture says you, a person can't do both, honestly. He can fake himself out. He can live in deception. But it is a turning from one to the other. And that's all Jesus was saying in Mark 8, 34. Go back to Mark 8, 34. It's not rocket science, but God is serious. He's like, I want your heart. Are you going to give up? Are you going to raise the white flag? Are you going to turn to my son? as the only hope, as your Lord and Savior. Mark eight thirty four. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, you've got to make a choice. Is it going to be your life or Christ's life? If you choose to hold on to your own life, and you don't give in to Christ, you're ashamed of Jesus Christ in context. So to believe in Christ is a very real decision that involves the whole man. And it requires a personal accounting in one's soul. As Jesus required of the rich young ruler when he chose to walk away. 
a real decision. But God will empower anyone who's humble before him. Again on the board, then who can be saved? Matthew 19.25 How does an unbeliever whose only faculty is the human flesh go about repenting or even believing? Well, they can't do it on their own, but it's easy with God if you turn to God. God gives grace to the humble. With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Period. And on the board, we saw this wonderful principle on Sunday. God demands and solves. God doesn't leave us stranded, like to our own, try to do these things in our own power. On the contrary, He's just looking for our free will to surrender to Him, and then He just does it all swoops us up, so to speak. God demands and solves. While God will indeed wait patiently for a man's soil to be prepared, his demand for repentance never wanes. In a sense, he says, I'd like to save you. Are you willing to let me? Are you done trying yourself? Let me show you my grace. Let me introduce you to my son. This, my friends, is the good news of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the gospel, if you will. And remember that this believing is in a person. Not just the facts about him, but it's a, it's a placing one's trust in this person. Couldn't be more personal. So let's look at another example of denying self as part of accepting the good news. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verse 1. And if one is going to accept the king's righteousness, he must drop his own righteousness to do so. Matthew 22, 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. All they had to do was will to come. They had to will, okay, I will be there. I'm going to come. I'm going to drop whatever I... I'm holding on to here. I'm going to come. I've been invited by the king. They were unwilling to come. There we see a pure lack of repentance towards the king. Notice how God's grace invites a multitude of people, but he won't force men to accept his grace plan of salvation. The whole man is involved, including the will. Look at verse 4. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. Whose way? Self. Holding on to self. One's own way to salvation even. They went their way. One to his own farm. Another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. 
And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Great. Or so it appears. Some will actually come to the wedding feast holding on to their own righteousness, refusing to deny self, trying to get into the narrow gate by another way, by self's credits. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Some of you are like, no big deal. Well, this king was a huge deal. Why? We'll see in a minute. He saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. How many people are going to be speechless at the judgment seat when they realize their own clothes, their own garments, their own righteousness won't cut it with God? They're going to expect to get in. They're going to, they're going to think they belong, belong, so to speak, but they're trying to earn their own way. So this man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Seems a little extreme. Why such a punishment? Well, this is a picture of one who tries to go to God with his own righteousness not submitting to God's righteousness. For example, Romans 10.3. We're not going to go there right now, but Romans 10.3 talks about that, and Philippians 3, 8 and 9. It's a picture of a person going to God with his own righteousness. Basically, you do that, you're snubbing the king. You're saying, I don't need you or your mercy or your grace. I'm not a sinner. Not that bad anyway. Why won't you let me in? And they, they would try making their own case if they could speak. But at that point, they will be speechless. It's a picture of someone going to God with his own righteousness and not submitting to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is the only way into heaven for any of us born in sin. And yet man tries to hold on to it arrogantly. And they refuse the better garment that the king has graciously offered them. And this is akin to what's known as the robe of righteousness that only comes from God to cleanse those who turn from self-righteousness to his righteousness. Go to Isaiah 61, verse 10a, as we begin to close. Isaiah 61.10, part A. I'm also reminded of uh, Zechariah chapter 3, where the high priest Joshua was 
filthy, and Satan was accusing him. And God's like, get away, Satan. Let me put my robes of righteousness on Joshua, the high priest. And God, God's garment made him righteous. The only way a sinner could be made righteous. But anyway, look at Isaiah 61, 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. If you don't allow humbly the king to wrap you in a robe of righteousness, you ain't going to be righteous. You're not going to pass the bar. You're not going to meet the standard. And that's the, the guest going into the wedding feast with his own clothes on. The king offered him a robe of righteousness. He's like, no, I'm good. And there's arrogance getting in the way of man surrendering his will. And notice who receives this robe of righteousness from God. Look at Isaiah 61, verse 1. And this is a verse that Jesus quoted during his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. To who? The afflicted. He has sent me to bind up who? The brokenhearted. Those who are repentant towards God. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God can only do all this for the humble. That's the one thing he's waiting for in man. And he does all the work. This is the gospel of God. The fact that God gives his saving grace to the humble and he gives his righteousness to those who are willing to give up their own righteousness. To, to make an accounting of their own life and surrender. Give it up. Stop striving in the flesh try to impress God and earn your way. And again, the things of God are impossible for man, but more than possible for God. He does all the work. He's looking for this one attitude. But it takes free will. Go to a Romans 1.1 as we close. This is where we close on Sunday. A wonderful passage. Painting the picture of the gospel of God, which has always been and will always be. Romans 1.1 Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Before we go any further, Jesus brought with him when he began his ministry, the gospel of God also on the board. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, 
Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, Romans 1.1 Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of your scriptures, for the plainly stated doctrine you give for all of us to understand. And we thank you for the gospel, your gospel, the gospel of God, that has always been and has never changed and will always be until everything is over. We thank you, Father. Help us never take these things for granted. Help us humbly receive your truth, both for ourselves and for sharing it with others, so that we again can have more brothers and sisters in your kingdom, all by your grace. Father, please bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.